The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Merrimark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today is Brad Matthews, a builder and work health and safety consultant who specialises in risk management trying to merge safety with productivity. He's also spent a lifetime as a martial arts exponent in Kaikashin Karate and Jiu-Jitsu. And it's a pleasure to have him in the studio today for Over the Bonnet. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Brad Matthews, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you for having me. You have a martial arts background. Tell us about what's happened. What got you into it in the first place? Well, that's a long, 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 long time ago. The, the, uh, I got involved in that with a... Um, it's just something to do. I, I was playing squash and um, at the squash courts there was a... Funny, that's a good post. <laughs> there was a... Um, <laughs> guys doing some taekwondo or something in the in the squash courts uh, training in there and I was watching that I thought oh well, that's interesting and uh, I got involved and started training with them and then uh, I met some other guys who were doing um, uh, it was uh, I think it was Zendo Kai karate the instructor was Peter McIntyre and this is in Rockhampton so ah Peter yes. yes he was a a, a very smart man and and there was another guy called Dan Fruinlord and they had a security company and they ended up getting involved in doing some security work and um, and then they transitioned into um, uh, Kwaikishin karate and Trevor Field from Mackay was um, you know, sort of part of that process and got to meet a few of the guys from up there and um, we were training at the Sun City um, Tennis Village. Was it something that you, that you talked to? Oh, it was, it was kept me very, uh, uh, it kept me a little bit fit. I wasn't drinking, I didn't used to drink in those days. I was. Oh, I was, how times <laughs> changed. <laughs> I, was, I was quite, uh, quite a, a fit young fellow and um, um, it, it kept me occupied and it was um, because we were doing some security work at the same time it was sort of something I thought oh, I better keep doing this otherwise it was because it was another way of earning some cash so how, did, how effective was it uh, the Kaikashin karate that you're doing how, how effective was it in the security work I think probably not so much from a uh, you know I can uh, you know, use the techniques on on people, um, but it was more around the confidence it gave you that you could take care of yourself. Um, it was, uh, and then from there, I, I moved into uh, jujitsu. So, uh, sort of, uh, I was invited along to a jujitsu grading uh, by a fellow called uh, Elf Ward, and he was in uh, from Nokido Jujitsu, and um, we. We're watching that, and uh, I walked in, and they were doing throws and different things. And I thought, oh, well, that's good. And afterwards, I was speaking to him, and I said, uh, "You're um, you don't do much fighting." 
<laughs> how do you know how good you are? Have a bit of a couple. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's not, doesn't look really exciting. So he's taken this, his, this knife out of this Wiltshire knife out of his training bag and he's handed it to me and he says, uh, cut me with it. And I went, R- Real knife? A real knife, <laughs> the one that you use to carve up your roasts, and uh, he said, cut me with it, I went, don't be silly, and so he slapped me up the side of the head and said, go on, cut me, and I've got, oh. <laughs> next thing I'm on me, on me backside up the, uh, you know, a couple of metres away, and he's got the knife, and I'm going, I want to learn how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my introduction to jiu-jitsu, and so I, uh, and then I was doing jiu-jitsu in Kaikashin at the same time, and then eventually it uh, became just doing jiu-jitsu. So. Why go away from the karate? Um, the jiu-jitsu gave me more... Um, it, it, it expanded on the skills. So the reason why I sort of continued... Uh, well, I followed the jiu-jitsu path rather than the, the Kaikashin path was the... Um, Kokushin was, you know, uh, I grew up around, you know, people like Brad Madam and uh, Trevor Field and um, these guys who were, you know, national, you know, uh, world champions in in these in Kokushin. And it was, uh, I thought, yeah, well, that's that's really well and good, but it's not going to do what I need to do. I was working in nightclubs at the time, you know, as well as being a chippy. <laughs> Um, so the nightclubs were sort of that bit of extra cash that you sort of got, and uh, it was basically your social life as well. So, um, but yeah, so learning how to defend against knives and, and broken glass and and uh, sticks and multiple people and all that type of stuff was um, was uh, something that jiu-jitsu was able to provide. Uh, better than uh, Kokushin. So. What do you think of the BJJ these days? It's the the, the new thing. You're a traditional jiu-jitsu practitioner. Yeah. What do you think of BJJ? Um, I think they've, they, they do it really well. What they do is, is done really, really well. And um, it has a, you know, the traditional, um, traditional Japanese martial arts also included groundwork and and uh, things like that. So our style originally came from a like cherry blossom. I think was a, the style was the the the, um, the name of the style was cherry blossom, and uh, so it involved uh, ground positions and and uh, it was a structured scientific approach to you know how to you know, defend yourself on the ground. It was similar principles around uh, dealing with um, uh, unbalancing and uh, traditional locking and, and uh, that sort of things. So it's sort of, um, the, when you say traditional, it was stand up and, and on the ground. Probably more stand up than judo, and but not as much uh, groundwork as, as judo. So, um, but the BJJ side of things, they do really, really well. So I've I've seen a, a few different schools um, do that. I was actually able to train with um, Absolute Jiu Jitsu in, which is uh, one of Mario Sperry's schools in in Sydney, and that was a, that was an interesting experience. And uh, what happened? Well, they. Um, 
they were really good at what they do. So, so some of the, the subtle movements that, that um, enable you to get out of it and position into um, an escape and, and those type of things. So they took that to the nth level, whereas the stand-up side of things was a little bit, you know, yeah, the cockishing part of that was I was able, <laughs> able to manage on that point. They got you onto the ground and that you were you were stuffed. Is it like human chess? The BJJ? I think even even the cockishing is like human chess. You, any martial art? Any martial art, yeah. You actually it's not so much um you dominating somebody else, it's you um, working on somebody else's mistake so they give you the opportunity to you know end it or finish it or whatever so um, and at the same time you're trying not to give them an opportunity to finish it so it's a bit, little bit like human chess I guess yeah how far have you taken it and can you still learn more oh definitely you can always learn more and um, I, I spent some time uh, as a as a coach with um, Jukushin Jiu Jitsu, um, uh, with one of uh, I think his um, in the, the, that was in in Brisbane, and we went uh, just basically coaching. So there was a, a new startup school, and we were assisting in that process. And the basics, just understanding the basics. Um, the more you focus on that, the better you get at the other parts. So. When you look at it and you see all these different techniques and all these different moves and all that, it really comes down to footwork, body movement, you know, the ability to understand, um, you know, the range of movement from the body and, you know, where the limitations exist. So. What's the big difference then between, say, traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu and Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Probably the same difference between Catholics and Presbyterians. <laughs> you know, they're still doing the same thing. Um, they, they've sort of got the, the same overall, um, <laughs> the same overall philosophies and, and things like that. Just that they reckon that mine's better than yours. So, is there much of that these days in martial arts? In some areas, there there is. Um, because I know back in the day, you talked about that uh, uh, Bob Jones and uh, Zendikai and, or Taekwondo, that oh, ours is better than yours sort of thing. And, and as a master said to me recently, any martial art done well is effective. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the better you are, the less that becomes a, uh, a factor. Uh, so the less that, um, oh, it's my style is better than your style. I mean, in Mackay, I ran a school for a number of years up at there at the PCYC, and um, we had people from everywhere come uh, like, come along and train, and um, we learnt stuff from boxers, we learnt stuff from, you know, Zendo Kai, from, you know, Kaikashin, Shadokan, the judo guys came along. Um, they didn't like the idea that we were getting thrown around without mats, so they uh, <laughs> they organised to get us some mats. So. <laughs> Soft. <laughs> Back in the day. So these days, 
you probably couldn't uh, train like that anymore. But um, yeah, back then we, we didn't. And, and that's another thing I've noticed over the years is the, the. I don't know. I won't say soft, but it's the the the, the focus of people is more around you know. Um, rather than learning a skill and learning techniques it's all about oh i don't want to get hurt <laughs> isn't that why you're trained in the first place that so you don't get hurt though exactly i think it's the 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 reluctance to you know, sort of uh take risks it's been the, the people are more reluctant now to take risks because they don't understand themselves i guess so they don't know what they're capable of and so that's why uh, something like a martial art helps people understand what they're good at and um, basically how they can develop um, and understand who they are and how to deal with um, you know challenges and problems and I think that's where you know um, with people understanding their resilience and being resilient they've never been tested so they've been given all these things in on on a platter you know is it that mcdonald's generation that we've got these days they want a quick answer and a quick fix and a quick solution there's probably a little bit of that um but also you know i know as a parent you know you sort of don't want your kids to get hurt so you sort of you know you, oh watch out for this and you you at times you can risk being a helicopter type parent um hang on what's a helicopter type parent <laughs> well as a helicopter pilot you would know <laughs> you uh, ho hover over the top of them and make sure that they don't get, they're always in your downdraft you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so. remind me to use that a little bit later but um so is then and that's one thing i've found teaching boxing is there no real mongrel in the current generation as you see it i think where there, there there is a meanness in the generation but there's no grit that's coming through like they, it's hard to find people with grit um coming through whereas define grit so grit is something that you just keep persevering with something even though it's uncomfortable so you'll um like I, I do remember um, when we're doing uh, some of our training, uh, like Kaikashin, for instance, we'd stand there and in in a night, and in two or three hours, we'd punch out you know a thousand punches and a thousand kicks, and that um, the effort, like, and you do that weeks after weeks after weeks. But then when it came time to you know in a competition or something like that and, you, and you're throwing those kicks you are dead tired but those kicks are coming out and they're still happening and you don't have to think about them you don't have to um, worry about them and there's a there's a certain um, percentage of the population that never actually experienced that and then there's other people there's a there's a smaller percent that sort of take it a little way and then there's a very small group of people at the top of that pile that are that take things and they they grow and develop and and, and push you know like our olympians and our you know the people that are doing you know the the, the dance 
training for dances and they, they practice and practice and oh, practice. I think they call months. them the one percenters, the, the one percent that continue and become the top of the pyramid. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it's, but then there used to be a, you know, under the one percenters, there was like a 25% of the population or 30% of the population who would, you know, they were the ones that you rely on and they'd get things done and be able to do that. And it used to be a bigger bigger percentage yeah whereas now it's uh it, that that's shrinking a lot smaller you know so being a Mackay boy you were teaching jiu-jitsu up there you talk about the brad maddams who was quite an exponent of martial arts in general they were real halcyon days they, they were um it was a it seemed that you know everyone used to want to train and you know you'd uh Whereas nowadays everyone sits around and looks at the looks at their phone. <laughs> Hang on, I'll just. <laughs> um, yeah, it was sort of uh, you. You had a a purpose. You were actually connected to a purpose, and you actually had a a goal, and it was part of your social framework and and things like that. Whereas these days, with the 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 rise of that social networking and all that type of stuff people are more disconnected and they're you know less motivated to achieve things so are you still motivated in different areas yeah so i'll probably go expand on a little bit of um so understanding your character strengths and is something that sort of i've always been um interested in what what you know, what am I good at? What what have uh, what what are the skills that I have? And so some of my um, my character strengths are things like uh, uh, problem solving, curiosity, love of learning, humour, and uh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that one yet. Though. <laughs> yeah, there, there's always time for a dad pun, you know. So, <laughs> um, but um, usually, when you can lean into those strengths. Um, and and my one of my strengths is around the love of learning and being curious, naturally curious about certain things, and um, and uh, being able to lean into that. So that the, currently, I'm leaning in more into that positive psychology space, and then getting an understanding of, you know, what motivates and you know what our purpose is, and how do we um, motivate others um, to achieve their goals and uh, and um, how to you know um, tap into that you know and, and get that you know help people can find out about their grit <laughs> discover their grit I guess it would we'll be, do that yeah. well we'll get onto that in in a minute but the um, I want to go back to the to the days you're doing security must have been an interesting time doing security at nightclubs in a country town which were a bit rough and ready in those days they were interesting times yes must yeah. have been some good stories what so, are the highlights the, uh, the highlights um, what are the lowlights <laughs> the highlights are you know an example is uh, one time uh, um, I, I wasn't um, a big lad. I was probably 80 kilos, ringing wet. <laughs> I think my uh, my fighting weight was around between 82 and 85. I didn't want to go over 85 because that put me in the open division. The big boys. <laughs> and they were they were some some good 
the fighters up in that space. So, so in the um, about eighty two to eighty five was that uh, my weight at that time, and there wasn't uh, like working in nightclubs and and things like that. There wasn't a um, you you couldn't rely on your size. So you had to work on um, you know, being able to be personable and uh, <laughs> and uh, I think one of the one of the, the early lessons that I got from uh, Peter McIntyre and, and Danny Fruinlord was that, um, you know, people are out there to have a good time. Uh, they're, you know, you're basically there to help look after them and uh, look after the other people around. So if these people are out of line, it's about going, come on, you know, you're out of line. Come back next week, but, you know. I don't want to buy you. Night's over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, um, and it certainly um, helped in that conversation piece and being able to uh, get your message across without actually being threatening and and uh, taking a you know a fighting approach. Was it an it. advantage being a smaller person or a or a bigger person or you know like was that an advantage or a disadvantage? I don't know whether it was an advantage. It was all I had. <laughs> <laughs> it was what I had to work with. So, um, but you... okay, in a nightclub, someone might say, "Well, okay, you're only small, and I can take advantage of that." Well, there were times when when that was that was there, but it was. And I'll give you an, give you an example of that. Um, we had a. Um, I was working in Rockhampton in, in Trix nightclub, and uh, in Trix nightclub, you had to walk up a set of a set of stairs. There was the ticket box on the corner, and then you walked. 90 degrees up another flight of stairs and then the nightclub was up the top and I was standing on that that landing and uh, there was a, a number of um, bikies came in so they had uh, you know, colours and all that type of stuff on and they had these these big knives on their, their belts and I said oh guys you don't you can't bring your knives in in here <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was you know, told in no uncertain terms that they weren't taking their knives off and it wasn't going to happen, and I said, "Look, I, I can't let you in." And out of, I didn't even see this punch coming. It, it hit me like, clocked me, and I was still not going to change anything. You can't bring your knives in. <laughs> <laughs> and our mate just looked at me and he's gone, "Fair enough." And he's taken it off and given it to the girl, and you know, and uh, checked his knife in. Checked checked it in, and they <laughs> got got a ticket and went upstairs and. As I've turned to look upstairs, I've passed out. <laughs> yeah, and, and so yeah, that was that was an interesting time. It was like yeah, delayed reaction from a from a punch. But it, it was that that type of um, that type of approach. But I never had any problems with those guys in the nightclub at all, you know. And um, uh, another time. Uh, they they brought some people out of the the club and um, were taking them down the stairs. And this this um, uh, lady had uh, taken her shoe off and embedded it in the the back of one of the bouncers' head. Um, at the time, got her hurt. <laughs> and um, she was uh, looking at uh, you know, swinging it around and and taking it on. Uh, it, it, attacking myself you know who's trying to keep other people out of the road and uh yeah so it was these guys that one of these guys had stepped in the road and clocked 
<laughs> put it on a put it on a bank sign. But yeah, so they were, they were different uh, times uh, back then. So. It must be hard to be a security guard these days because with the one punch philosophy these days, must be a hard job. I reckon it, it, yeah, these days, and, and not so much um, from, you know, the skills and techniques are still would still be the same. Like being able to communicate and that with, with people is different. But, yeah, the, the drugs and that that are out there these days and the, the, the amount of people that are, you know, uh, using these chemically enhanced um, interactions um, would be... Very challenging. You know. I suppose back in the day, it was a skin full of beer and go home, fall down, go to sleep. Well, it's that or, or, you know, speed or, you know, those type of things, um, which, you know, you were able to, you know, identify and, and pick up, whereas the, these days it's really difficult to, to to tell, you know. There's some people that... And, and they seem normal and then they turn around and they're just psycho, you know. Does and that worry you as, as a father... Does that worry you that these sorts of drugs are now out on the streets and readily accessible? It's not so much the drugs, it's it's more what it does to people and how people react when they're under those drugs. So there is just no sense making of some of these reactions that that happen, you know. Like they take a for instance, some of the the the, um, the guy in Melbourne that got in his car and was driving up and down the street, you know, like how do you make sense of that? You know those type of things. So, that's that's a um, that's concerning as a as a parent. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's for the kids to learn and and give them the the skills and stuff to. <laughs> hopefully, they've got the decision making about you know, you know being a helicopter parent. Well, you don't want to be a helicopter parent. You want to try and give them the skills so that they can make decisions and and uh, and you know, take care of their own selves. You know, so you want to set them up for success. You don't want to be the cause of their, you know, you know, they're only successful because you are there. You want them to be successful on their own. So. Become their own person. Absolutely, yeah. How and hard is that to let your kids be their own person? It is terrible. <laughs> it is terrible. Um, I, 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 I spent a bit of time out fishing with with dad, you know. So and and trying to understand how, um, you know, back in the day they helped us become our own people, and it was more, you know. At the time, I thought it was like, you know, I'm just going to go and do my own stuff. <laughs> Whereas, you know, and, and Dad would sort of give some, you know, guidance and things like that. And sometimes, you know, in your middle, when you've screwed up and you go, oh, I did recall Dad saying something about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that, that's, it's, it's, it's a pretty difficult balance to get, yeah. What were you like as a kid? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> in what way? What were some of the things that stand out if you were to talk about your childhood um oh it was always um i had to go and try and do and and be and and uh do it myself i, I couldn't take somebody else's word that you know 
that was at it. Yeah. Is the stove hot? Oh, let me see. <laughs> um, so that was that was you know my thing as a kid. I I'd always um, tested things out. Didn't um, didn't really take other people's word that you know that was why. Um, yeah, had to. Which led it. which led to many adventures. There was a few adventures, but um, you know, mainly mainly around motorcycles. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so they, uh, it wasn't a um, it, you know as a kid, you know, as a kid growing up and, and and moving into your own house and or flatting. And back in those days, it was cool. Don't know whether they flat these days. It's all these PC names for things, but <laughs> but um, yeah, it is. Yeah, you'd sort of find things out and, you know, all the skills that your mum and dad try and instill in you. Um, you go there and you go, oh, you know, if I don't wash up for like two weeks, it's probably going to run out of gear. <laughs> or get crook, you know, so. Mm. In the early days, you uh, started out as a chippy, got an apprenticeship. Yep. What happened there and where did that take you? So that was that gave me a um, uh, skill set that um, was I, I even use now. Like I've just finished renovating at the front of the house, so put a veranda on and put a pool in, you know, concreted and decks and all that type of stuff. So, so that's something that um, you know it was a skill set that was helpful. Um, and I, I spent a number of years riding motorcycles around Australia, and. And uh, that was one of the skills that um, I used to you know, supplement an income. You know, so you'd you turn up in a town, go to the pub, and say, "Has anybody <laughs> has anybody got any work?" And um, you'd um, you know, they go, "Oh, such and such is building down there, or they're looking for labourers over here, or they need some former chippies there." And so you'd uh, go down, put your name down, and See how it worked out, and and um, yeah, so that was that was a set of skills. So between security work and um, uh, you know doing bar work and uh, and you know, being a chippy, it got me around Australia. So where did you go? What are some of the highlights of the the adventure? Because not not enough people, I don't think, go and see Australia. It was the first thing that I did when I was young. Got around, got to see the country. Yes, yes. Well, I got quite. Uh, I went and worked around the um, around with them. Uh, they had a flood in Charleville, so that sort of started a bit of a journey there. I'd, I'd already gone up and seen Cairns, and we'd gone to the tip uh, Australia, and and that was exciting and uh, interesting stories. But they they just you know we just got by you know but uh out of charleville there was some some interesting uh you know we'd we'd turn up that's where i got my bike license actually after i'd been riding bikes for about <laughs> oh, three or four years and and uh i got pulled over one afternoon and was told uh this is only a car license <laughs> and i was on a motorcycle and they said uh, i said oh well you got me <laughs> Yeah, so but anyway that was a you know without incriminating anybody we we got my license so (laughs) 
which was which was good. Um, it didn't was not as uh, strenuous as I first thought. So we got through that process. But then you know we went out to the, the Scrubby Creek BNS Ball, and uh, that was held at the um, it was the Gun Club at Tambo, I think it was. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. So Sunday morning, everybody is hungover like you would not believe, and. Um, doing the clay pigeon shooting <laughs> first up <laughs> which is uh, just just what you need with a hangover <laughs> at 7am uh, in the morning but uh, that was an interesting time but then I went from there through to Alice Springs and then um, down to uh, Broken Hill so from Alice Springs to Broken Hill was an interesting drive because um, it would have all been dirt and desert a lot of it was dirt and desert I was, I was luckily uh, I was lucky to, you know, be able to catch up with other other travellers along the way, and I, I do recall getting towed about twenty or thirty kilometres behind a, behind a caravan, which was an interesting experience uh, along uh, outside of uh, um, Alice Springs. So how I'd come? How what happened there? I'd run out of fuel. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit further than I thought. So. <laughs> <laughs> And um, so, yeah, we had a you know, 10-metre rope behind a caravan and spent a lot of time dodging rocks and <laughs> and things like that. But, yeah, that was, a, that was an experience. And, you know, as a, as a young fella, you probably wouldn't uh, um, you know, want to do that again a uh, second time. But um, I do another time. Um, we did uh, got up to almost 300 kilometres crossing the Nullarbor Plains. And then, um, yeah, that was uh, interesting on a, on a bike. Um, didn't realise that they had uh, planes that fly overhead. <laughs> <laughs> they check, check speed and things like that. So and that was an interesting time. Uh, so uh, travelling across the Perth, um, up to Broome, um, and then cut through and then went up to Darwin. So and Darwin was good. And then I got a call from a, a mate who said, oh, we, we're... Working over in, um, working at uh, uh, Club Med or Lindemann Island at the time, and they're turning it into a Club Med. So he was working for Tees, and he said, "Oh, you, you come over and, and jump on board." And I went, "Oh, okay." So I rode from Darwin to to uh, uh, Proserpine, <laughs> and uh, by that time the bike was just about done. So uh, I sold the bike, and and that set me up for. Yeah, Lindemann Island, so that was good. Who was the best character that you met on the road? Some of the um, the elders, um, yeah, when when we're travelling through, you know, uh, Darwin and, and and that place, there's some interesting, um, the Aboriginal elders, they get some, some funny stories, but they're, they're a s smart, smart people you know so they you know when you try and when you try and get um paint aboriginals into a corner um or our, our indigenous australians into a corner and say you know you must be you know fit within our you know white culture and and stuff like that it's not really uh i mean you're not letting them be who they are i mean it's not the the stories like some of the stories that they told us about how connected they are with nature and how they um how they can track stuff and and 
you know, being immersed in that uh, in the land and uh, that type of thing is is it's a certainly a skill set that you know people in the cities just do not understand. Yeah. Did you pick up and now apply some of the lessons and learnings that you learned from talking to these people? I think it's more around don't don't pigeonhole people into a into a you know into you know oh you're um you're a drunk or you're a you know a fighter or you're a you know angry person or whatever it's it's more about understanding um you know that they you know what is it that makes that person interesting and tick yeah. you're talking about pigeonholes because a mutual friend of ours jeff erickson who i've spoken to on the podcast yeah. and he sort of said he's often in the early days was pigeonholed as the australian champion boxer yeah and it's something that he's really worked hard to move away from do you think we do that too much to people it's it's human nature yeah we try and simplify stuff and stuff it can't really be simplified. You don't understand somebody unless you actually, and then going back to something Dad said, you've got to walk a mile in their shoes. And, you know, by that time you're a mile away and you've got their shoes, but <laughs> you don't understand a, a, a person, you know, just because, you know, they're a champion boxer or they're a, <laughs> they're a, um, you know they're, they're they're good at something or they're that's not the the you know what they are that's not who they are you know um these elders and that um that on you know when we're traveling they were you know great storytellers oh they love to drink um but you had to you know when you got them outside of that space and you got them sober and you you know, started asking questions about, you know, what what does this do and, you know, how'd you get to here and, you know, why are you doing that? Um, but you took the time. You've know, you got to take the time. If you don't take the time, it's, you know, it's just like driving past something in a car. You, you miss it, you know, so, yeah. What did you take away from that trip around Australia in yourself? Pretty much it's a resilience thing. So um, you know, sometimes I'd uh, turn up in a town and I'd have, I'd have like ten bucks, <laughs> ten bucks in my pocket. Um, wasn't wasn't a, a big into uh, financial planning back then. <laughs> but uh, who was? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but then you know you certainly um, you know it wasn't. Uh, You'd turn up and, and, and things would manifest for you. You know, you'd you'd go, okay, well, but you'd need to take action. If I sort of sat around and went, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do, yeah, I'd still be there, you know. So In a country town, though, the hub is often the pub and you probably did the right thing, went straight to the hub where I was recently in uh, Roma and I was looking for an old friend of mine from when I used to work there yeah. and... First place I headed for was the pubs, yeah. and it's just interesting with the evolution of Roma into a, an oil and gas sort of epicentre. There's no locals, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. And then generally it was the pub or the post office or the or the or the general store, like the the, the store, because you know, outside the store they'd have, um, you know, all the 
you know, Bob selling a trailer or, you know, all the community notices type stuff or um, you'd even just get chatting to the people that were running the store, you know. Um, and sometimes the store was the post office or vice versa, you know, so the, you go to the post office and things like that. But uh, you get just get talking to different people. It wasn't really planned, but it was a, um, you know, I had a goal in mind. I didn't want to starve. <laughs> Did you? No. No, Did you get hungry at all? No, mm. no. I don't think I'd uh, ever missed a meal. You sort of put it out there and, you know, work towards that and, and things happened. Yeah, it was it was freaky at some times, you know. So. You mentioned your father a few times. He must be a real influence on you. How much of an influence is your father on you? Oh, well, when I was young, he never knew anything. <laughs> As I've got a lot older... <laughs> He knew a hell of a lot, <laughs> yeah. So as a as a um, as a person that's a, he, he sort of a self-made person, he grew up and as a farmer, and then he became a, a theologian, and then he, he sort of worked as a um, uh, in in you know a company director and and uh, sat on boards of various companies and things like that. So he um, he's got a lot of life lessons around uh, you know and and some of the things that I've learned from him is around that you know that communication uh, piece and asking questions and um, you know finding out uh, things so, so there's more than one way to skin a cat he'd say you know so. he's got plenty of sayings do any stand out to you yeah um, yeah pretty much there's more than one way to skin a cat <laughs> um, the um, you know, if, it, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Um, Do you? Pretty much everything that you, you know, if it's worth doing, you give it a crack. You know, if it's not worth doing, you don't bother. <laughs> the, those two things were the ones that um, definitely uh, stood out. They were turning Lindemann Island into a club med. Yes, must have been a good adventure. To the exclamation mark on the end of the round Australia trip? Pretty much that was it, yeah. So it was a, um, it was an interesting time where I'd, I'd finished a, the trip around Australia, I caught up with a couple of mates, we doing some building and I stayed on um, to with the maintenance crew afterwards. So we were, we did uh, maintenance, I was the, uh, the routine uh, which was, uh, according to Francois, the the boss <laughs> at the time, he said, uh, "You get the you get the buggy, you get the walkie-talkie, your uh, people call you, you go and fix." <laughs> so that was my job, and and pretty much uh, we worked from uh, 4 p.m. in the afternoon through to 1 a.m. in the morning. So if anyone needed anything fixed, I'd go and fix it. <laughs> you must have met some interesting characters on the island then. Yes, yes, we had the uh, the Honourable Society of the Brothers of Darkness, who uh, <laughs> we um, we were a small group of entrepreneurs who um, didn't appreciate paying the uh, staff prices of four dollars for a can of uh, forage gold at the staff bar. So we we took matters into our own hands and and uh, organised our own supply of alcohol from the mainland. Um, 
eventually that became bigger than what the staff bar was uh, bringing in and so we um they, and apparently <laughs> you have to have a liquor license to sell alcohol so um we moved on from Lindemann. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so that was that was an interesting time as well. But there was some, you know, yeah, living on an island where you 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 walk everywhere and you, um, you know, the fastest you go is like in a buggy, and uh, you get get back to the mainland, you get in a taxi and <laughs> hanging on for dear life. <laughs> Yeah, so, but that was interesting, yeah. How did you find the culture shock of coming back to day-to-day living on the mainland? Well, that was interesting because, uh, yeah, I, I turned up in, in Mackay with, uh, you know, a couple of hundred dollars in my pocket and nowhere to live and I was sort of looking up, looking for a mate um, and I was going to, you know, bunk on his couch there for a while but uh, I ran into uh, a fellow called Dave Charles who was just... Um, uh, you know, getting a uh, well, starting a nightclub in there called Legends and, and um, good old Legends yes it was uh, renovating old Valentino's in, in there so and he needed some uh, security and so I said oh yeah I'll come give you a hand and because uh, I knew him from uh, Shark Club and that in Rockhampton and some of the other places in Rockhampton found a place to to stay and and like I said it all works out so it's funny how (laughs) funny how life turns out at times. Uh, What do you put that down to? The flow? I haven't really thought about that too much it's sort of more uh, it's it's something that you if you you know you put it out there um, it's um, yeah you, you it, you need to have an action, and you, you need to. Um, if you sat around, it wouldn't happen. But you you actually have to go and do something. So I think that is sort of probably a lesson that I've I've learnt. You know, if you if something needs to happen, um, and this is another one of Dad's things. If it's up to me, if it's got to be, it's up to me. <laughs> so um, you know, you've got to. Um, actually get off your butt and you know, go looking. So you're a proactive sort of person? Definitely, yeah. You've got to be proactive. Yeah. Is there enough of that these days? I'm not sure. Some people some people are very proactive. Um, others, you know, maybe not. They wait for things to come and, you know, you know, it's probably, yeah sitting on your phone waiting for things. I don't know what they do on their phones. Is the COVID culture that we're getting at the moment with the people making more money for not working than when they were working, is it going to create that sort of uh, culture? When you get something and you don't have to put effort in, that's always a bad, bad thing. You know, so you get something for nothing, um, which is great if you're, you know, walking along and you pick up five bucks off the ground and you go, oh, look, look I found this. Whereas if you, if, if that's your lifestyle, where you expect um, something for nothing, where's that going to leave? Eventually somebody's got to create the something that you're getting. So how does that 
that's not sustainable as a from a from a cultural perspective and you know is, is this how the mayans died out they all went oh hang on no let's not do anything let's just wait and see you know <laughs> <laughs> all the dates coming uh, the end of the world's going to come so let's just wait you know it's going to you know wait for something to somebody to give us something and then yeah that's it you know essentially we're living on the nation's credit card yeah i don't even know whether it's a credit card you know we <laughs> we yeah. so what do they do just print more money so yeah, are we really in debt you know and then you've got the you know you've got a, a country that says you know yeah we've got you know one and a half billion dollars in debt and then who are they to tell me that you know just i'm, I'm 500 dollars over my uh <laughs> overdrawn on my uh you know credit card yeah what, what's you know how does that work <laughs> it's all it's all ether you know balance and perspective mm. you got from uh, from building you went into oh&s what was the transition what caused it I see that yeah, as you get older, your body doesn't uh, take the same punishment as you used to dish out in the early days. So um, um, I spent a bit of time going from a as a chippy, you know, you go through and you, you plan jobs and then you begin into project management. And so that project management was the um, was the transition piece between that. So I was helping other builders um, you know, plan jobs and, and uh, taking, um, uh, looking at their, their business um, processes and then looking at saying, well, hang on, we've got contractors that are, you know, taking the piss and, and you know, charging us, you know, you know, huge amounts for, you know, and they're causing delays and the longer you delay on a, on a job the you know, more you cost blow out because at the other end you've got you know you know we've got um, loan um, you know business loan you know, interests and all these other uh, costs that that come out of that you've got um, um, you know fluctuating rates can impact on your bottom line and uh, and and different things like that and talking to suppliers if you're paying retail for everything it's just um, you, you've got no, you know, you've got no buffer in there. So it's working with builders to to build that buffer into their profit margin. So build um, because everything had to be so tight. You know, you, you, you're competing against other people, and so if you can, you know, make money on savings um, uh, by buying better you uh, increase your profits so or you become profitable <laughs> for some of these guys so yeah and a, and a lot a lot of that um, process came around to um, that health and safety sort of thing so this is around um, um, you know incidents uh, so where you have a, a, a safety incident on site or you have um, you know even a, a quality um, incident uh, where you've got to go back and do rework and all that type of stuff. It's about minimising those challenges. Risks. Yeah, and risks. Yeah. Do we take too many risks these days, or is it legislated out of uh, the workplace these days? No, we don't teach people to plan. So we go, that's bad. 
but we don't teach people how to plan. So I think that's the biggest, the biggest challenge for people these days is, uh, you know, you get the, you get the safety guy who goes in and says, oh, you can't do that. So how, how then do you eliminate that problem or fix that problem? And, and um, the main process is, is looking at the, the business as a whole, not as, you know, this safety item or that safety item or that environmental item. You look at the business as a, as a, as a you know, holistic approach and then you go, if we plan things here, we're not going to have that problem down here. And um, so that, um, that's what I do now is help people in that space. What's the biggest thing as far as planning goes that businesses really need to look at as far as improving their OHS? I think it's taking the time to plan. They don't. They don't see the value in. Oh, I'm. I'm spending time planning. Even down to the to the um, the psychology side of things around lassitude awareness. So uh, lassitude is is more than complacency. It's it's about um, you get used to the risk that you're taking, and it becomes normal. So you're normalising risk. Um, so you're working in a highly risk environment and it becomes normal. And so it's dealing with that. And so how do we, um, how do we deal that, with that process? What's the biggest problem then that the average uh, employer or company business, what's the biggest risk that's taken in the workplace? You talk about that getting complacent to risk. What are people doing wrong? It's not what they're doing wrong as such, it's more what we're accepting um, these days. So everyone wants to do it for the bottom dollar. So in order to do it for the bottom dollar, there are some things that don't get the attention that they need to have. These days when you've got builders competing against other builders and you've got um, you know, your tradies trying to get jobs and it's, you know, it's this rationalisation of risk so you go, well, it's not going to happen to me or it's, um, you know, um, I I'll, I'll, won't need to do it this time. It's only a small amount of time. And so you rationalise why you're taking those risks. And um, it's in that, that space where, because um, people don't go to work to be safe. People go to work to be successful. And in being successful is, you know, whether it's, um, you know, you, you um, uh, make it a profitable job or whether it is a, um, you know, some people are successful because they, you know, enjoy other people's company at work, you know, that that's what motivates them and keeps them going back to work. Um, so it's this, um, why, what makes people successful? What What is their reality of success and then how you know they rationalize the risks to achieve that every time so what makes a business successful then getting that balance yeah it's 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 hard it's, it's not a tangible thing it's a um and it can change just by you know uh through you know lack of communication or through um, you know uh, poor communication 
So I've seen um, uh, another job I worked on was at a uh, was at that Embley Air Base where we had uh, you know, worked for a um, one of the spos out there that they had a, a special programs office and they had some challenges around um, uh, their safety management system. So and culturally they sort of moved from a uh, a company that was doing stuff to a company that was um, managing other people doing that same stuff and um, they, they were you know the level of communication was not the same a as a manager as it is when you're you know actually doing the work so then they um, they've taken you know it, it just required to get them involved in that process and then they became they took ownership of certain aspects of that which they had control of and they felt that they could control and that was um, by getting them involved in that there was visibility then of of action and once you had visibility of action and communication that culture changed from a something that wasn't really um, beneficial to the organisation, to something that was, you know, a standout. People were going, well, what are you doing different? They're, they're just talking better, yeah, so communicating better. You went from OHS into these days, you're looking at the psychology of safety in the workplace. What are you learning from that? I think it's just an extension of OHS or, or WHS. Um, so safety is involves people, and um, if you don't understand people, <laughs> it it becomes really difficult to do your job. It's not all about um, you know uh, you know uh, you know you're not following the rules. Why aren't they following the rules? You know, yeah, and with positive psychology and then that's the field I'm sort of looking at it's it's looking at it from a different perspective so you've got instead of going what's wrong with you we ask the question of okay so what what are you doing right so when when it when it goes well what what are you doing what, what happens when you when it if it runs perfect do you have a common answer when you ask that question of people no, and that's the good thing. <laughs> See, the, the other thing is that they talk about in, in from problem solving is is these things called wicked problems. So wicked problems. So you got simple problems which are linear type things. It's sort of like um, following a recipe. So if I follow the recipe uh, to bake a cake, I follow the steps and I get to the, that. That's the solution. And then you've got um, complicated problems. So complicated problems are where you've got, say, putting a rocket to the moon. So there's a lot of, some are simple problems, but there's a few that require some specialist skills and, 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 um, and, and tools and resourcing and, and different things. But you can, once you've sent a rocket to the moon, every rocket is like every other rocket and so you can send the send that rocket up to the moon and you can send multiple rockets you understand the pro the process is there then you have 
complex problems. Now, complex problems are like raising a kid. <laughs> Just because you raise one child doesn't mean you can raise the second one using the same skills and techniques and processes. Um, it might give you experience, but that doesn't mean you're going to be successful at that. And, you know, there's no guarantee. You know, you start with a baby and you go, there's no guarantee that you're going to get that child to, you know, adulthood successfully, you know. So that's that's where, you know, health and safety sort of sits in that space where just because something works for one organisation or one group of people in an organisation doesn't mean it's going to work for multiple people in that organisation or multiple organisations. So um, the other thing is too, you might fix one problem in one area. Creates other problems. Creates another problem. Or you go to do the same thing in another area and it doesn't work. And this is because, you know, the complex problems generally have a, a you know, their, their social um, uh, complexity. So there's complexities with, you know, because everyone's different. Um, yeah, it's, it's very complex and it's a social complex. So it's not necessarily, so there might be a set of values over here that are not replicated over here. And it's in, so you're working with values and you're working with um you know, defined purposes uh, from, you know, each individual has a different, you know, uh, interpretation of what a, their purpose is. In general, are businesses ready to hear that sort of message? Some are. Um, others, it sort of takes time. There's, there's still this, uh, you know, even though nowadays this, you know, you, you must follow the rules, and if you don't follow the rules, you're you're a bad person. Well, that only gets you so far. Why aren't you following the rules? Is is you know, do the rules make sense? You know, and and that, that's some of these type of um, conversations. Like even some of this stuff around the the COVID, and you look at some of those the stuff that's coming out around the rules around COVID. It does not make sense, and so. Where it doesn't make sense, people are not going to follow that. Whether the penalties for doing that are, you know, um, big penalties, you know, if you don't follow it, you're going to get that. But if it doesn't make sense, the first opportunity you get for not following that, you'll take it. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's human nature. What do you think of the COVID situation? Are we getting it right? It's an interesting scenario for the world, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, there's all sorts of problems down in Victoria and Daniel Andrews is right in the middle of it and you sort of say about people not wanting to follow the rules. Is Victoria getting it right? Queensland's put the border up. Are we getting it right? We don't really know. We're, we're, we're doing something. Is it right? You know, what, what are the outcomes of, of those type of things? So when you, when you start looking at that from a, you know, from a people perspective, what's the impact of that on, on people? So... You know, we've both got elections coming up. Both states have got elections coming up. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what perspective that's going to change. Is it a, you know, people are going to say, well, look, I don't think they did a good job or they did a good job, but, yeah, no, we're not going to, 
<laughs> we don't want to go through that again, you know. And or are they going to associate the blame? And, and it, it's all relative too. So if I have a, if I'm reasonably unaffected by you know border change, border um, you know closures or any of that type of stuff, it's not going to. I've got no problems about that. However, somebody who's in the tourism industry who's basically lost their livelihood and seen their, you know, lost their house and and all those type of things, they uh, probably have a lot higher, um, you know, feelings about that, you know. But of course, though, if we do change the government, for example, in Queensland, we'll have the same chief medical officer. Well, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, they're, they're, and, and from a from a from a you know uh, wicked problem approach, you know, a change in one area isn't going to change change an outcome, is it? So it might change our perception. It might change a um, you know it'll you know appropriate blame because uh, you know the the whole world's you know in, in this bit of a blame culture thing at the moment or blame them for that or blame them for this and i'm a victim and you know which is another thing don't get me started on that <laughs> but getting um, you know i'm going to <laughs> but this this process of um you can't solve wicked problems with simple solutions i guess that's where I want to come from in that that space yeah do we have a victim mentality these days the media certainly portrays a victim per mentality. Um, I don't know whether that's, um, you know, mm. you know, across the, you know, uh, the rest of the population, but it's what the media want you to think. So, and I think the media has a, has definitely has a, um, uh, a, a role to play that, and they could be, doing so much better in what way what could they or what should they be doing because how we take our news on is changing and evolving like newspapers across the uh most of the regional dailies have all gone yeah um the way we take our news is changing what could the media be doing uh, i guess it's in the, the the framing of the language they they have an agenda where it's sensationalism and it's you know what sells what sells, you click know, bait. clickbait and all that type of stuff. So it's certainly, uh, no one wants to read about, you know, things are positive or even even just to get information that is just the facts is difficult. Now you have facts with somebody's opinion and they're, they're slanted in, you know, with somebody else's opinion. Back Back when Brian Henderson... I don't know whether you remember him. Because <laughs> Brian told me. <laughs> um, he would just read out the news, that's the facts, and, and that's it. He wouldn't give his opinion or anything like that. And, um, and it's all, oh, it's all doom and gloom. It's all, yeah, this is bad. If you don't do this, you're bad. Oh, hang on. And if you don't do this, you're bad. And if you don't do this, you're bad. If you don't do this, you're bad. It's all about... Um, uh, that uh, the piece, if, you, if they were asking different questions or presenting different information in a in a more positive light, um, yeah, I think it would be. I, I haven't watched the news for oh, probably 
two or three years. I don't I don't sit and watch the news. What could you learn from watching it though? How to be depressed. Um, Steam and gloom. Doom and gloom, yeah. Yeah, depression, um, you know, uh, victim uh, mentality, um, you, know, you know, woe is us, you know, that type of stuff, yeah. You're in the uh, work health and safety industry. What's the biggest risk you take? Critical thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, the biggest risk is, is, you know, giving people, um, uh, you know, information or, or um, uh, providing, um, you know, alternative uh, thought processes to why they're not, um, why people aren't doing, uh, you know, what they want them to do. So why are people being, um, you know, hurt at work? Why are we doing this and um, from an employer's perspective sometimes they don't like hearing that um, well what are you doing to support these people uh, you know how are you how how are your systems set up to enable the person to be uh, uh, you know work in a safe way how are you uh, allowing their um, you, you've engaged a person because of their skill and their knowledge and their their experience, and yet you're telling them to shelve that knowledge and experience and follow this, which is contradictory in some ways to why they're. Um, it, it's basically a butt covering exercise and not a not a productivity. Um, um, safety um, related exercise. So is that the biggest problem you come across these days? Yeah, so it's, it's business safety is one thing and they see productivity is another and really those two should go together and a lot of the time when things happen it's because they haven't merged those two together and they you must be safe but we want you to work 60 hours a week and take these risks and get that job done. <laughs> and we'll pay you extra money if you take those risks and do that, but you must be safe. And it's, you get this cognitive dissonance between productivity drivers and safety drivers. And it's challenging for people to make sense of that. And, and depending on how this person perceives their being successful at work, they go, well, hang on. I'm getting money. Money is my, my driver because that helps me be successful, keeps my wife off my back, um, I can give the kids you know, what they need, and so I'm going to take those risks. And then when something happens, the company goes, oh, you didn't follow our safety stuff. And they go, well, hang on. You paid me this extra money to go and not do that. I thought that's what you meant. <laughs> you, you wanted us to hit all these targets. And we can't do that if you've put this safety blockage in the road. So there's those challenges around that. So the, the biggest challenge in my uh, place is to, um, at work, is to communicate that to the employers and say, look, this is what you've put in the road. It doesn't make sense and it can't, you can't meet that with this. Great way to finish. Brad Matthews, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Marymark Medical. 
Mary Mark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick? Ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions. When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Mary Mark Medical. Contact Mary Mark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cup to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose spinning foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. Now, they'll help you get down and dirty and save your feet with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it in for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. That's at Gimpy Foam and Rubber. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader, which is big, and their Positrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-ton, 8-ton, and a 2.5-ton. Plus, they provide side truck hire and even have a roller and a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 228806 and the earth will move for you.